Welcome, WG listeners, to a long read. So for this long read, we head to Pitchfork for a long form called The Woes of Being Addicted to Streaming. It was written by Jeremy D. Larson and dropped on May the 23rd, 2022. And with that said, let's jump right in. I feel unsettled when I stream music on Spotify. Maybe you feel that way too. Even though it has all the music I've ever wanted, none of it feels necessarily rewarding, emotional or personal. I pay a nominal fee for this privilege, knowing that essentially none of it will reach the artists I'm listening to. I have unfettered access to an abundance of songs I genuinely love, along with an abundance of great songs I've never heard before. But I can't shake the eerie feeling that the options before me are almost too perfect. I've personalised my experience enough to feel like this is my music, but I know that's not really true. It's simply a fabricated reality meant to replace the random contours of life outside the app. The truth is that if you're using Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, or any other streaming service, you're not paying for music so much as the opportunity to witness the potential of music. Music becomes an advertisement for the streaming service, and the more time and attention you give it, the more it benefits the tech company, not necessarily the music ecosystem. In Spotify, each song's play count is prominently displayed, in effect gamifying the music industry so that tracks tactically compete against one another inside the app. They even go so far as to turn the amount of time you spend in their app into a badge of honour during their annual year-end promotional campaigns. So you're in the top percentile of Big Thief listeners. That's not just a measure of your love for an artist's music, but also a reflection of the time spent enriching the value of a company. In addition to co-opting corporate social media strategies to benefit from the attention economy, tech companies have inherently made songs fleeting, cheap and sometimes intrusive, corrupting the cultural exchange between artist and listener. Music is now leased to you through a secret system that you don't understand, by a company with which you should have no emotional connection. Instead of simply buying a physical product or even pirating music from Napster, both of which created uniquely personal libraries of songs that help define the identities of a generation, millions of users now sit side by side at the ledge of one great big trough of recorded music for the monthly price of a Chipotle burrito. There have been many passionate and excoriating essays written about how streaming services have shortchanged artists with minuscule payouts. But as the reviews editor of this music publication, I find myself asking, what does a platform like Spotify afford the most engaged music fans, and what are the lingering effects of its use? As the independent musician and writer Damon Krakowski once wrote, there are alternative and radical solutions to combat the upstreaming of profits and homogenization of sound that the streaming era has come to stand for. But as one of nearly half a billion people who pay a small fee to rent the vast majority of the history of recorded music, not to mention the 2 billion people per month who use YouTube for free, I have found that after more than a decade under the influence, it's begun to reshape my relationship with music. I'm addicted to a relationship that I know 
is very bad for me. I know I am addicted to Spotify the same way I was addicted to nicotine or Twitter. It makes me happy, aggrieved, needlessly defensive. Oh, you boycott Spotify and only buy CDs on Bandcamp? Good for you. I use Spotify every day for hours on end, when I'm working, at the gym, running, when I want to put some music on while making dinner, when I go to sleep. I write off part of my Spotify use as a hazard of my job, but I just can't get enough of that sweet streaming asbestos outside of work too. Even though I buy a fair amount of records every year, Spotify is my main delivery system for music. It's like being hooked on rolling papers or the yellowed smell of a casino. Not the actual vice itself, the ease, the look, the familiarity. I'm addicted to the emotional labour it does for me when its radio feature instantly creates a playlist of songs that kind of sound like, say, Breakdown by Tom Petty and The Heartbreakers while I'm sitting outside on a nice afternoon. It loosely organises what I love and what I might love, and for the most part, it's absolutely correct. I've sometimes rationalised that it's not an unhealthy addiction. I use Spotify in a way that reflects who I am. I bend it to my whims. For the last 10 years, I've kept playlists of favourite songs, both old and new. I discovered each year a living record of growth and change in taste. I listen to weekly playlists that are made by friends and colleagues and artists, silently connecting with their interests. I'm going beyond the algorithm, operating at higher frequency, clipping between the walls that cannot contain my taste profile. The seeds of this addiction were planted in the late 2000s, when the music industry was struggling to adapt to the new digital era. Unsure of how to wrap a tourniquet around the vast hemorrhaging of money caused by such a fast-moving paradigm shift, the streaming era as we know it began in an unlikely place, with good intentions. On October 10th, 2007, Radiohead released In Rainbows and allowed fans to pay what they wanted for its digital files. After 1.2 million downloads, the average price paid per album was $2.26. Case studies in setting a new market price don't come in a tidier package than this. But as free market and egalitarian as it was, the experiment was meant to motivate fans to go out and buy an actual physical copy of the album. Devised by Radiohead's managers Bryce Edge and Chris Hufford while they were quote-unquote a bit stoned, the pay-what-you-want stunt was a means to an end. Quote, If we didn't believe that when people hear the music, they will want to buy the CD, we wouldn't do what we are doing. Unquote. Edge said at the time, A lot of Radiohead fans did buy the album when it came out. It sold 122,000 copies in America alone in its first week. But by then, the downloaders outnumbered them by a wide margin. So even though Tom York later describes Spotify as, quote, the last desperate fart of a dying corpse, unquote, his band all but invented the model of what would become the streaming era, turning music into an ad that you paid very little for, with no real incentive to go and buy what is advertising. Another important shift was happening in 2007. Seeing the writing on the wall, several high-profile artists were abandoning their long-time major labels to find other avenues of distribution. Madonna left Warner to sign with touring giant Live Nation, a bellwether of where the real money was being made in the industry. Jay-Z would make a similar move the following year. Nine Inch Nails left music mogul Jimmy Iovine's label Interscope and independently put out an instrumental album, Ghosts 1-4. through By Trent Reznor's estimation, the collection made millions more than it would have had they released it with the label. Into this stew of major label woes, which included the lingering piracy boogeyman, came Spotify. Launched in 2008, the streaming startup was a direct attempt to both stem piracy and circumvent anti-piracy laws in its native Sweden. 
In addition to offering a way for online listeners to legally play music, Spotify acquired its user base in markets around the globe because of how easy it was to use. No more paying per song on iTunes. No more navigating the murky waters of P2P servers. No more waiting for albums to download. Here, finally, was a solution. Legal music, a lot of it, right now, for cheap. After officially launching in the US in 2011, Spotify quickly turned into a potential panacea for everything that was ailing the music industry. Two years later, newspapers were asking, can Spotify save the music industry? A race to market dominance ensued. By 2014, Reznor had mended fences with Iovine and became the chief creative officer of Iovine's new streaming platform, Beats Music, which wanted to set itself apart from competitors like Spotify and Pandora. Instead of an algorithmic platform that served you what you wanted, its team of curators would provide you with a more human experience. Iovine saw that through artists and influencer created playlists, you could confer taste, status, and criticism, the stuff that the former record-buying public supposedly pined for. One of Iveen's maxims at the time, access is average, curation is everything. Seeing the promise of a more bespoke stream experience, Apple bought Beats for $3 billion and relaunched the service as Apple Music in 2015. That same year, Jay-Z stood on a stage with Madonna, Rihanna, Daft Punk, Kanye West, and several other A-list musicians to announce the artist's majority-owned service title, with, quote, a mission to re-establish the value of music, unquote. Touting hi-fi streaming and better payouts for artists, Tidal seemed like a much-needed counterweight to Apple Music and Spotify. Finally, here was a platform not funded by Silicon Valley VCs, but by, admittedly already wealthy, musicians who understood the art and work that goes into the process of creation. But since its launch, its growth has lagged dramatically behind its competitors. Last year, Jay-Z sold the majority of Tidal to Square, a mobile payment company owned by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. Each successive introduction of a new tech company into the streaming era sought to solve a problem created by the digital era. Pirating, the devaluation of music, and the lack of human connections music once relied upon. At this point, music piracy has generally been on the decline for five years. Major labels have plugged the holes in their coffers by licensing the vast majority of their music to streaming services and meeting out payouts to their signees. The exception has always been the independent-minded Bandcamp, which includes a Radiohead-style pay-what-you-want option at a record's point of sale and fosters holistic connection between musicians and listeners through hubs run by labels and artists. Earlier this year, Bandcamp was acquired by software company Epic Games. Much like social media, the streaming era has created a simulation of real life. Each company uses its technology to digitize and replace the analog practice of buying, listening, and connecting to music, all while capitalizing on the nostalgia of those activities. The seamlessness of the experience, the ease with which one song bleeds into the next, and the buffet of decisions laid before you on Spotify's home screen creates an artificial scarcity out of vast abundance. For me, it has caused kind of nagging depersonalization, an experience so divergent from, say, holding an album in my hands or being in a record store that I feel like a little bit of a hack every time I open the app. But I also understand, for the majority of subscribers, this simulation of a beautiful, vibrant, limitless music industry is possibly all they could ever want. Let's say there are three general categories of music listeners, passive, auxiliary, and intentional. Most of the world falls into the passive category, absorbing music like inhaling oxygen, without much thought at all. For them, there is either music playing, or maybe it's not music playing, who can be sure. 
there is perhaps little to no interrogation into why any sound is floating down from the speakers at the grocery store. It simply exists at the same megahertz as the shopping cart and the fluorescent lights and the cereal selection. Songs are liked and not like if they are thought about at all, and the whole relationship is pure and elegant. The second is the auxiliary listener, someone for whom music enhances a primary experience to make it more interesting. Common forms of auxiliary listening involve music accompanying a visual stimulus, like film scores or needle drops in movies, music videos or their modern day equivalent, a song snippet looped in a TikTok. But the auxiliary listener chiefly uses music as a utility, to relax, to work, to go to the gym, to get drunk, to do drugs, to have sex, to dance, to fall asleep. Music is not your life, but what was playing while you lived it. The last is the intentional listener, someone who chooses to listen to music for the pleasure of it in and of itself. This is admittedly the tiniest category of people, a subset that spends a remarkable amount of time listening to albums, mixtapes, DJ sets and playlists without distraction. They are purposeful about what they select and why. For them, there is a pleasure to be found in the flow of listening to music and the emotional, intellectual and biographical response that it creates untethered to anything but the chemical responses in the brain. Some of these people use drugs to enhance this connection, but not all of them. Music, for these people, is life. It's important to make these distinctions because I believe that for passive and auxiliary listeners, again, the vast majority of people in the world, Spotify and the streaming era writ large have achieved an ideal compromise. The technology has made accessible what had previously been difficult or kept behind the gates of record stores or music criticism. For an older generation, there is a sudden overwhelming pleasure in being able to listen to all the music from your life instantly, retracing the decades through a digital library. The cognitive dissonance occurs when people in the intentional group, people like me, try to tell people in the passive and auxiliary groups how to listen to music. I know the global financial devaluation of music is irreversible, and there are only a small percentage of total music listeners for whom the phrases buy from brick and mortar stores or support Bandcamp Fridays means anything. But what I fear is that the streaming era is actually writing the same listening histories for those who can't be bothered with intentional listening, all exclusively based on proprietary algorithms that seem like a way to discover music but, in fact, act more like a feedback loop. A close friend, an auxiliary listener, recently sent me a Spotify link to an album by classic rock revivalist Greta Van Fleet, noting that it would be good music for the gym. This sent me into a bit of a panic spiral for three reasons. One is that I wondered why I neglected to share my professional life with him. In 2018, my pan of their debut album drew the attention of those beyond Pitchfork's usual purview, with Barstool Sports suggesting that the band must have, quote, fucked my girlfriend, unquote, and GVF fans threatening to, quote, TP, unquote, my house via homemade signs they held up at concerts. The second is that I realised I am but a tiny little dust mite in the universe, and my own opinion on Greta Van Fleet is largely irrelevant beyond the scope of a few thousand music snobs and select GVF fans. And what's actually important in the world is the bond close friends have despite the relationship glitches. Third is that Spotify knows me better than my close friend. The more time I spend on Spotify, the more it pushes me away from the outer edges of the platform and towards the mushy middle. This is where everyone is serviced the same song simply because that's what's popular. Four years ago, while the app's algorithmic autoplay feature was on, I was served the pavement song Harness Your Hopes, a wordy and melodic, and by all accounts obscure, B-side from the beloved indie band. 
As of this writing, the song has over 72 million streams, more than twice as much as their actual college rock hit from the 90s, Cut Your Hair, the one pavement song your average Gen Xer might actually recognise. How did this happen? In 2020, Stereo Gum investigated the mystery, but came up empty-handed from a technological perspective, though the answer seems obvious to me. Whereas many pavement songs are oblique, rangy and noisy, Harness Your Hopes is among the most pleasant and inoffensive songs in the band's catalogue. It is now, in the altered reality of Spotify, the quintessential pavement song. When frontman Stephen Malkmus was asked about this anomaly, he sounded blithely defeated, quote, At this point, we take what we can get, even in a debased form, because what's left, unquote. The whole Harness Your Hope situation is, in part, a result of what's called cumulative advantage. It's the idea that if something, a song, a person, an idea, happens to be slightly more popular than something else at just the right point, it will tend to become more popular still. On the other hand, something that does not catch on will usually recede in popularity regardless of quality. This is the metric of how most social recommendation algorithms work. On Facebook, the more likes an article has, the better odds a user will read it. But when this is applied to what songs are sent to which people... Spotify can engineer its own market of popularity, as well as what songs define a band. Popular songs on Spotify are popular within the app because they are what most people are listening to. So from both a behavioural psychology and business perspective, it makes sense for Spotify to assume that you want to listen to what other people are listening to. The chances of the average listener staying on the app longer are much higher if Spotify curates songs that have had a similar effect on people whose taste matches theirs. This is one of the main addictive chemicals of most streaming services. Recommend a handful of songs out of millions that feel uniquely personal, but in fact are just what everyone else is hearing, too. If a passive or auxiliary listener lets the algorithmic Spotify radio play songs based on Tom Petty's breakdown, the results are almost purely based on chronology, tempo, and feel. Gone are the filigrees and the autobiography of the song and how it existed in the world to you, the listener. Instead, Everyone's experience is now the same. For instance, Spotify's radio station for Ludacris, What's Your Fantasy, doesn't link to any Outcast songs, even though I watched Ludacris open for Andre 3000 and Big Boy when that song was released in 2000, and both acts are from Atlanta. Is Spotify aware that Big Boy is a huge Kate Bush fan? Does Spotify know that singer-songwriter John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats is a metalhead? If you have seen Darnielle cover metal bands from Dio to Gorguts to Nightwish, or are familiar with one of his most popular songs, the best ever death metal band out of Denton, you know that he loves some sick riffs and moonwood barks. But all of that intimate and publicly available knowledge is lost to machine learning. Tuning into Spotify's Mountain Goats Radio won't turn up any Dio at all, just literate and mostly acoustic indie rock songs that sound similar to the Mountain Goats. Left to a streaming service, these kinds of textured and unique connections are smoothed over or erased entirely. I've committed my personal and professional life to making sense of music, of finding connections and context within songs to create a critical framework that allows me to organise everything I listen into an ornately chaotic web. If I started a Fugazi radio playlist, maybe I would throw some red hot chilli peppers on there. You'll hear it. If I started a pavement radio playlist, how could I not include the Louisiana rapper Young Bleed song How You Do That? where he calls himself slanted and enchanted. I would argue that Prince's When Doves Cry and Parquet Quartz's Instant Disassembly 
Both utilize a stilted, inverted grammatical style in their lyrics and are absolutely in conversation with each other. When music is so abundant and our attention is scarce, there's power in adding more intention to your listening diet, more chaos, more risk. The thrill in finding music that is wired to your singular life is not that thousands of other people have found the same thing, it's that the music becomes something confounding and unique, a true reflection of where you are and where you've been. The beauty of the algorithm of your mind is that it makes perfect sense to no one else but yourself. So to recap, that was The Woes of Being Addicted to Streaming, written by Jeremy D. Larson for Pitchfork. And when I said, until the next long read, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.